0: Okay, Antonio, I thought we can start this uh, episode with a quiz for you. Okay. Um, so to this... quiz
1: what I've read it. The
0: book no, quiz. no, not whether you've read it. This is, it's, it's, uh, well, I don't want to say too much. It's a question. I'm trying to, I'm describing a person. Okay. And you have to guess who it is.
1: Okay.
0: So this person is male, born in the 90s in Surrey. Uh, Is interested in the, or was interested in the sciences and in the arts, was very tall, liked to play the piano, had dark hair. His mother was a teacher, his half-brother studied the brain, and in his teenage years he had a rare eye infection that required hospitalization. Huxley. Very good. I thought you were going to (laughs) say me, (laughs) because all of that also describes me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I knew about his eye infection. I also knew about, um, his brother or half brother, as he said, being a scientist. And I think he wanted to be a scientist as well. But then because of his eye eye infection, he couldn't pursue the scientific career. Um, that's all all the facts I know. So uh, he gave, he gave some important um
0: uh, damn it. I as I was trying to set you up because <laughs> you know all of those are also true for me some of them are slightly uh you know some of them are intentionally leaving out some things to make it work such mm-hmm. as I was born in the 1990s he was born in the 1890s
1: oh yeah
0: <laughs> that kind of thing um also my eye infection uh, was basically I had to go to hospital for two days to get some stuff checked and then I could basically get away with not doing any work for school for four weeks despite having pretty normal vision. That sounds good. Uh, whereas Huxley was borderline blind at some point yeah. and had uh, some, yeah, it was a constant factor in his life. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah, his brother or half-brother won the Nobel Prize for some of his studies in neuroscience and my brother studied cognitive neuropsychology, so you know <laughs> it's pretty really well, similar.
1: You should have asked me to quiz in a different context. It's just too easy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Or oh, you're too smart. I don't know. One of the two. Probably um, both. Yes. Um, okay, so you you passed that quiz very well. But no, I actually looked up. So one, so I, I knew that he was born close to where I was born. Uh, so he was born in Godalming. And I looked it up, that is actually uh, 16 miles from where I was born and four and a half miles from where I grew up. So it seems like we could have, you know, walked there in like one to two hours. Um, yeah. So I didn't actually realize it was that close. But yeah, but the, uh, the, the the similarities then end pretty quickly there. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought I could maybe trick you with this one, but I guess not. No. I guess you're too, no. too educated about literally what we're going to talk <laughs> about for an hour now. Maybe I should also say at the beginning, uh, this isn't a huge difference, but there is a slight difference between what we're doing now and what we did in the kind of book club series. So the book club series, we read 100 pages or so a week and then discussed that part and then continued throughout the book. Whereas here, this is more a one-off general discussion about Mm -hmm. the book. I think it's still probably best to have read the book first, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, spoiler alert.
0: Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I'm not entirely sure whether we're gonna, how much we're gonna say about the plot and that kind of stuff. But yeah. Um, oh, by the way, Antonio. So I, I, I realize, so I, I never, you know, I never introduced my guests in the podcast. But that's because people listen to the episodes because of the guests, right? Mm. Uh, my interviews are all about the guests. But then I realized in the book club that's not really the case, um, and I never introduced you in the Dostoevsky uh, book discussion.
1: That's fine. Also, definitely don't introduce me uh, as a as anybody who knows or somebody who knows anything about literature. I'm just. Well, I,
0: I wanted to say I did bring you <laughs> as my literary expert on Ex- okay. early, early 20th century English literature. Yeah, yeah, um, not well, quite. Early to mid 20th century.
1: I'd rather introduce myself as somebody who's interested and has an opinion, but <laughs> <laughs> In- nothing more. <laughs>
0: okay interested opinions without education to back it up yeah so. <laughs> um
1: opinionated interests without educated and educated uh, half educated guesses like i this. mean
0: i this might be the book though that you're most qualified to talk about though because at least brave new world involves the psych a lot of the psychology that was around in the 1930s so mm. I, I guess at least like you know, if we've we've heard of Pavlov and Skinner and these people yeah. outside of this book, and yeah, yeah, at least five minutes in in a lecture about this.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, so here. Okay, so you passed my first question. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to make a, a second uh, second quiz. Okay. God damn it! If you get this one right too, so who died on the same day that Huxley died? they actually, um, I mean, there are many people who died that day, <laughs> but two people actually who are famous.
1: I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> the first I is uh,
0: C.S. Lewis, uh, okay. you know, Chronicles of Narnia and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But both of those deaths were kind of underreported and not that, despite both of the authors being famous, it wasn't that, it was not the big news of the day because on that same day, a certain man called Kennedy was assassinated.
1: All right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I'm sure there must be some conspiracy theory or something, um, oh, around a, that date.
0: There is a Kennedy Lincoln conspiracy theory because it's like, because Lincoln was assassinated in the Kennedy theater or something like that. And Kennedy was assassinated in a Lincoln car or something like that. And there's, I once saw a YouTube video on this. It's it's uh, very important. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So we wanted to discuss Brave New World. Um, maybe I should say kind of why I chose this book. So the you know the the distinction to the, the to the book club is also kind of relevant in the sense that in the book club we're talking about books that I haven't read and that I'm interested mm-hmm. in reading. Whereas in this one, we're discussing these one-off books are books that I've already read, and that for one reason or another had some sort of influence on my life or that affected me in some way. And Brave New World is you know one of those books. And I don't think like it necessarily changed all that much, but it's it's I found a really interesting book in the sense that um I, I think I've rarely read a book and so frequently thought about the characters like, oh, you idiots why you're doing this?" and then half a second later oh wait i'm doing the same thing (laughs) so you know a lot of this when they they do something to seek pleasure or whatever all this kind of stuff right like in this book i think it's very easy to see why what they're doing is doesn't seem right or doesn't seem like the thing Mm. you should do but then as soon as you start thinking about your own life you realize that yeah most of the stuff at least i do
1: yeah now i'm intrigued what your equivalent of the soma addiction is
0: (laughs) Sugar, <laughs> sugar. <laughs> That's the best we've got, basically. Yeah. No, I I don't have. That's maybe the one difference. I I'm I'm very stimulant or addiction free in that sense, but uh... which
1: I I think is that, like one of the kind of like key aspects of of the society or the the key building blocks in a way. Because if they didn't have it, the whole project wouldn't work. Well,
0: yeah. I mean, I guess the whole point is more is a, is a, is a broader one, right? It's not just about taking a pill to ease some pain or make yourself feel better or something like that. I think it's more in general about, uh, yeah, just doing things to avoid, you know, to feel good or to avoid pain, even though maybe that's not always the best thing to Mm. do. And sure. And in this case, he uh, actually invented this super drug in a way that can you know do everything without side effects and we don't have that yet but you know the i think that the principles are pretty similar
1: yeah i can see your point it's um avoidance of anything that's negative by escaping and escape can be anything in in the book it's it's by means of of taking a pill
0: yeah. And yeah, I mean, that's obviously just a small part of this book. I mean, there's, there's lots of stuff to this. Um, but that, that was at least the reason that for me was, you know, I think as we'll probably discuss later, I have lots of problems with the way this book is written. Um, and I found it often quite frustrating to read, but those moments, I haven't had that as, you know, it's, it's, I think this might be more German saying, but like to have, to have a mirror held in front of you mm-hmm. and to kind of, you know, you're looking at something else, but you're realizing you're actually looking at yourself and that maybe there, there are some things you might want to change in your life. And I don't think I've had that quite as much with, at least I can't remember having that quite as much with other books.
1: So what aspects, because for me, it's very much um, the way I read the book is about, what well, is a dystopian book, right? Or like talks about this, a dystopia. And I think probably it also has to be seen in the context of its time which was during the two wars which was a time where there was lots of new technology and new inventions etc and um, I think some people maybe were afraid of where society was headed and I could see how this book was maybe written in a time during which lots was changing and society was uh, seemed to go into a direction, and, um, you know, he was taking it to the extreme and imagining this, like, very extreme society, which is based on technology and scientific advance in some sense. Um, Obviously, we can talk about the science um, in more detail because it's also not black and white. But um, I guess my question here is, like, how was this – a mirror for you because for me it's almost like it's futuristic, kind of like a warning sign of where we could or where we're headed or we could head towards
0: Yeah, um so as I mentioned to you before we started recording. I haven't actually read the book in about a year uh, because I've spent sad. so much time reading other books about around this. So mm-hmm. I, I, the problem is I don't actually know, the, I don't remember the specific details right now of what it was per se. But I think it was more the kind of general feeling I just described of realizing that you're just trying to, often you're trying to make yourself feel good rather than, um, you know, it's it's, yeah, I can't, I can't remember the precise details right now, but it, it, there was this sense just sometimes of the people, of, of the characters in the book trying to, I mean, I guess not so much the, the main character, the right, who, who rebels against the source system, mm. but more the others who go along with it and say like, oh, look, all this technology is great. I'm feeling good and all this kind of stuff. Mm. And then me just thinking, yeah, but you know, is, there, is that what you really want?
1: Yeah. Well, this is the whole question of the book, right? Is it because they're in a state of constant bliss, but whether that's enough for, for us or whether that's Id- the ideal for us, because it might seem like an ideal situation, constant bliss, but it's, if you don't, don't have the negative emotions, you also can't really feel the highs of positive emotions and that being love or, or um, you know, extreme joy or happiness compassion empathy etc because there's there is no love really everybody belongs to everybody so there's no no romantic love no family love also because they don't have have families and there's n- nothing to work to it because everything is set in stone with the social hierarchy so nothing to aspire to us but there's only pleasurable activities and that being like you know, obviously, sexuality being a big thing in the society, and and they have like all sorts of entertainment, which brings pleasure. And together with the drug, they're in a state of bliss. But it sounds very monotone And um, what I found is interesting is that in one part of the book, um, this it's the end, when they talk to the uh, what's his title, the the world controller. And and he explains that it is, that everybody has to undergo a, what's the name, like surrogate, passion surrogate, basically they have to undergo a medical treatment in which they are in the same state as you would be in, like physically or physiologically, as you would be in under conditions of extreme rage or anger or fear. Because biologically, for the body, it's sometimes important to uh, to be in this right. state with all the hormones, etc. Uh, and and I found that interesting because I, at first uh, I thought about um, the necessity of pain and fear and anger in a more like uh, psychological context. But then also this part of the book is like, yeah, uh, actually makes sense because we, you know, like we need to be in like like a constant. F- fight and flight mode is obviously not good for the for the body um but sometimes for the heart rate to go up and um certain home hormones to be uh, levels of hormones to be increased that makes sense that, that it's important for our body yeah don't really have a point with this but i found it interesting to think about it from from that angle as well
0: but i, but I guess you know this is maybe kind of that those that relate to what i meant in that you know, that is kind of what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to feel good all the time. And then we realize, though, like, you know, for example, that's why people do lots of sports and exercise, because that is almost a way of of changing your physiology in that sense, but without Mm -hmm. actually feeling rage or any of those things, right? So that, of course, it's different because exercise then is difficult. And then, so, you know, it's not like there where you can just kind of be brought into it, you have to do it yourself. And so that's uncomfortable. But it's it's in a way still a, a sense or a way of creating those kind of physiological reactions without mm. actually experiencing necessarily the negative emotions yeah so there are all these things where you go like why why do we do all the things we do and most of it is just to feel good either in the short term or in the long term right <laughs> if you yeah. do it in the long term then you're <laughs> almost uh, then you're almost wise but it's still kind of the same thing right Mm-hmm.
1: But the reason why we, in our society, why we seeking to feel good is because we know what it means not to feel good. We've all been in in pain, we've all been angry, we've all been hurt and in fear, etc. So we have a very good reason for avoiding it. I find it interesting, almost like if you had like no motivation, like oh, where does it come, the motivation to continue or to, to live where does it come from if you haven't really experienced the negative emotions or I mean, sensations. it just becomes
0: culturally ingrained right I mean that, that I think is the kind of interesting thing so now we we still have to experience these things but the more I mean the question is whether it's ever possible but let's just assume it is the more and more you get all these unpleasant stuff this unpleasant stuff out of your life but you still do certain things to preemptively avoid negative emotions or whatever i think then at some points that does become just this kind of general these kind of societal norms and that kind of thing and then through that way you can maybe reinforce that yeah to do to do those things to, to basically to just still avoid feeling bad but without having experienced it I mean, this but
1: i don't but i don't think that like because we never ever really going to Get there unless we have a drop, we would have like an equivalent drug that keeps us in one state. Because you, you know, like no matter how advanced our plastic surgery or whatever is, or all the like. Is that
0: what you do to
1: feel good? No, but like, you know, obviously they they are like in a state of of youth until they die. So they don't have any physical pains and and like aging doesn't really exist, but at some point they just die. Um, and maybe maybe from like a physical perspective, I could see that our society, we're get, getting better. You know, like we're keeping younger for longer, probably. Like uh, you can, we have get better screening methods. We have better medicine and drugs and all sorts of treatments. That I can see, but there's still jealousy. There's still, you know, um Goals or aims, and therefore also disappointment, because there's still competition, there's still rivalry, and that only the reason why they don't have it is because a there's a very like there's a system and structure in place so that you're born an alpha, you're an alpha, you're a leader, you have a great job, you're at the top. If you're born an then you are a labourer, and you're conditioned in a way that you. You're right with this and you don't want to ever be at the top. So there's A is is the social structure and B is, I think, is the drug because I was thinking about this whole aspect of nobody having relationships and nobody having intimate relationships and everybody belongs to everybody, everybody's sleeping with everybody. And then I was like, well, this is like why why wouldn't people feel jealousy because it's ingrained in our biological system. This is how we evolved. That is that we feel jealous jealousy. And it, it makes sense evolutionary, right. That you, that you wouldn't want your partner necessarily. I'm obviously not speaking for everybody, but in general, like people often feel this, that they don't want their partner to, to have sexual intercourse with somebody else. Um, and, and, I came to the conclusion the only reason, like obviously parts can be the conditioning, but if it's such an innate and automatic response that in my eyes can only really be inhibited by a drug which just prevents you from feeling negative emotions and you're just happy anyway, no matter like, you know, no no matter what.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's it's interesting, or I mean, well, it's it's rather it's difficult to to say how how people would feel differently about these things if the entire culture was set up completely differently, right? I mean, I I, I would also imagine that there's some biological basis to it that's difficult to um, avoid, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, I think it is interesting. Like, if you take the entire culture around the expectation of monogamy and these things if you just take all of that away i wonder yeah how much of that is still left but um sure but yeah i guess if you take a drug then that that probably should that should do it
1: yeah and i think so therefore i'm just like i don't see the book as some like as a like for all these reasons but this is not something that is likely to to ever happen within the next. Ten years or so, because I think, like, first of all, we don't—we're not that advanced that we could easily just get rid of of aging and and have a drug that would work in the same way without any side effects.
0: But I mean, this um, is set though. I can't remember exactly three hundred years in the future or something, right? So there's sure. uh, and then you know, within three hundred years, anything. I mean, pff, whatever. Yeah, it's like I think saying anything beyond like. 50 years into the future is by now. Yeah. Yeah, God knows what's going to happen. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I just find it interesting how, I mean, some of these things, yeah, I mean, just how, how a lot of the things that that society has reached do seem a consequence of what we're trying to do now. And that doesn't, I guess, necessarily mean that what we're trying to do now is wrong per se, because, you know, you don't have to take it to the extreme you can stop, you can say, okay, it worked until now and now we're going to do something different. Hmm. But, yeah, I do find it in that sense a, a useful, not warning, that's maybe a bit too strong, but. Um,
1: but then I think one component you're missing there is that it is very much suppressive and controlled and the whole system only works because people are, not aware of it, and they're being controlled because of the conditioning and uh, so soma. So they, it's. I don't think. I think that the the awareness is missing, so that they don't know what is being done to them. Like the controller, he knows. Like he, he made the decision to not to go to an island, but to, you know, support the system and and be a part of it. But he's very much aware of it, and he's kind of like he's got all the forbidden books and and science and literature, whatever that nobody's allowed to read. He's aware of this, but the rest of the population isn't. So I think there are like two aspects of it. Yes, maybe that's something you know individuals try to avoid negative emotions and pain, etc. But also they don't really know that they're doing it because there's this very controlled state and whoever has a different perspective and doesn't want to take the drugs or is a bit of a more critical thinker is outcast an island. And I think that is a big aspect. So that, that, that is important for the whole system to work and for the whole society to function in a way. So I don't think it's only the avoidance of negative emotions and pain
0: yeah i agree. I mean it's not only voluntary and um i'm glad you mentioned that because i've been doing all this reading and i've been waiting for something to come up that relates to (laughs) some points i wrote down and here we are um so as i mentioned i've been reading a few books around this one of them is brave new world revisited Antonio, do you want to know what that is
1: (laughs) yeah i want i want to know tell me yeah um enlighten me
0: yeah, sorry. I mean, I, Antonio asked before we started recording what it is. That's why I'm saying it in such a weird way. Um, so it's basically... Uh, wait, let's see when this was published. Yeah, this is about 25 years after Huxley published Brave New World. Um, so 1958, he published Brave New World Revisited, which is a series of essays that Huxley wrote in which he kind of just comments... Some of the stuff can almost be seen as a, as a kind of um, non-fiction companion to Brave New World in which he explains some of the principles or, you know, in a, in a non-fiction way, um, what they mean and what the consequences are. In some cases, he also talks about whether stuff might that he wrote about in Brave New World works or not um, or some recent developments. I mean, so one that I can maybe mention briefly is For example, he talks about um, the origins of soma, this drug, and that it's not just something that you know. There's a long history to humans making different substances um, to alter their minds. I mean, the the one chapter there is called chemical persuasion, and he you know talks about how in India or whatever they had certain drugs. Well, they had a drug called soma. That's where the name's from. He also talks about I mean, you know, Huxley experiments a lot with different drugs in the 30s and 40s and 50s or something, don't know exactly when. But, you know, I mean, when he died also, he was on a substantial amount of LSD. So, that, you know, he, for example, there talks about those kind of things and how humans are starting to develop these kind of drugs that can alter minds. But the one point I wanted to mention that relates to this is, um, as you mentioned, it's not about part of... What Brevity World is about is that people actually want to do these things. But another part about it is that it's a kind of dictatorship that forces it onto the people without them knowing to. And I guess there's two points here um, that I can make. One is um, so this, the first point is about basically people becoming these suggestions that the world makes, so they have this hypnopedia where people are told all these things while they're sleeping. And to that, Huxley commented, this is page 114, In the brave new world, no citizens belonging to the lowercase ever gave any trouble. Why? Because from the moment he could speak and understand what was said to him, every lowercase child was exposed to endlessly repeated suggestions night after night during the hours of drowsiness and sleep. These suggestions were like drops of liquid sealing wax, drops that adhere, encrust, incorporate themselves with what they fall on, till finally the rock is all one scarlet blob. Till at last the child's mind is the suggestions, and the sum of these suggestions is the child's mind. And not the child's mind only, the adult's mind too, all his lifelong. The mind that judges and desires and decides made up of these suggestions. But these suggestions are our suggestions, suggestions from the state. Is that actually, a quote from Brave New World itself, don't know, uh, but that's part of it, right? So, they, yeah, you you ingrain in people these kind of beliefs. But a more interesting point I thought was that, so you know, Brave New World is often compared to 1984, mm-hmm. um, by George Orwell, and Huxley himself also made this comparison. Um, and oh, wait, I should play some ads while I'm searching, yeah, <laughs> or I'll just take them out. Um, I mean, this is then, I'll just make this very short. Um, so, this is from page 43, which is the chapter on propaganda in a democratic society. Um, he says, in the immediate future, there's some reason to believe that the punitive methods of 1984 will give place to reinforcements and manipulations of Brave New World. Um, so, you know, I mean, Brave New World was published first, but Huxley explicitly said, like, you know, the kind of stuff that's done in, in 1984. probably not what's going to work and part of that is because then he continues he basically mentions how to create good propaganda in a state Um, and the way of doing that is by you know not appealing to force and violence but to by appealing to people's self-interest so the, the brief definition here is there are two kinds of propaganda rational propaganda in favor of action that is consonant with the enlightened self-interest of those who make it and those to whom it is addressed, and non-rational propaganda that is not consonant with anybody's enlightened self-interest, but is dictated by and appeals to passionate, blind impulses, unconscious cravings, or fears. Um, and then, right, so this is from the next chapter called Brainwashing. And this, I think, is interesting when you then yeah think about how the society is set up right now in some sense. So before that, he talks about how you can like break down anyone's mind and that kind of stuff, and you can make people confess to anything, uh, if you just basically uh, torture them. But then he says, But confession is not enough. A hopeless neurotic is no use to anyone. What the intelligent and practical dictator needs is not a patient to be institutionalized, or victim to be shot, but a convert who will work for the cause. Yeah, maybe I'll just leave it as that. Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting point there that he's making, and... What when you read Brave New Worlds revisited, you realize that for Huxley, this Brave New World is a much more political book than it ever would have been for me. Because I think he he's very interested in how, in a way, a state, you know, a modern democracy can set up propaganda um, in a way that people are just going to follow up with it. He also has I'm not going to read it now because it's too long, but he has this another quote about, you know, how you set up marketing by basically instilling fear in people. And then mm. you kind of substitute some sort of product that, uh, then sells you hope rather than the actual product. Mm. And,
1: um, I mean, I think this is very r- relevant at the current <laughs> times. Um, propaganda. I mean, I see it, I think like at the moment during like, um, a lot of like COVID pandemic, um, is very interesting to me to compare. Different countries or states, how they deal with it, and how a successful vaccination program or like successful quotation marks you can, like, who measures, like, everybody measures success differently, but how this in some countries is used as propaganda to support political parties. And there's very much the aspect of fear and then hope and rescue. Which, yeah, is I think used very cleverly, and and also because I think for like over the past two years, the public has been controlled by the state, like so much. is like, like, yeah, since since the the Second World War, I think we haven't obviously been in a situation in which the state has so much influence in our personal lives yeah and i don't really have a point with this other than this is interesting to think about um propaganda and state control through propaganda and to play with fear and hope current moment
0: yeah and i mean yeah it's it's yeah i mean it's just so effective right i mean i think the 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 big thing is just how widespread it is, right? Not, I mean, propaganda always sounds so... as if there's, you know, someone trying to pull the strings and manipulate the world. I think it's often much more people acting in their self-interest and realizing, huh, this, you know, marketing campaigns, realizing, hey, this, if we, you know, make people feel bad about themselves, uh, then we can sell a bit more of this. So it's not necessarily that there's, you know, like, you know, these world controllers who try and manipulate the world per se. I think it's just that certain beliefs can just naturally lead there. Um, Hmm. I had uh, one very brief point that I thought was surprisingly, you know, he wrote this in 1958, the Brave New World Revisited. And um, I don't want to draw any obvious um, uh, uh, comparisons, but I think there are quite a few politicians who've become famous because of well, basically, he describes a lot of modern politicians. So this is now uh, from the chapter, this is now, uh, the arts of selling. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about politicians and how they have to, you know, uh, be able to look sincerely on TV or at the TV camera. And here, so here's a quote from page 74. In one way or another, as vigorous he-man or kindly father, the candidate must be glamorous. He must also be an entertainer who never bores his audience. Inure to television and radio, that audience is accustomed to being distracted and does not like to be asked to concentrate or make a prolonged intellectual effort. All speeches by the entertainer candidate must therefore be short and snappy. The great issues of the day must be dealt within five minutes at most, and preferably in 60 seconds flat. The nature of oratory is such that there has always been a tendency among politicians and clergymen to oversimplify complex issues, From a pulpit or platform, even the most conscientious of speakers finds it very difficult to tell the whole truth. The methods now being used to merchandise the political candidate as though he were a deodorant positively guarantee the electorate against ever hearing the truth about anything. And I think there's so much of, you know, politicians saying something that sounds good on a Mm. five-second TV clip or whatever. Mm. But... But I mean, the problem is in some sense, you know, I think it can very quickly sound condescending and, you know, like these stupid people who vote for these people. But I think the problem is it's just kind of the it's way human. most things work right now, right?
1: Well, I think it's it's human nature, right? We notice say yeah. psychology we have a non- our attention span is um, not infinite and we have limitations and we react to yeah simple messages differently to very complex ones and we find it hard to listen to somebody for 20 minutes straight however somebody tells you something within a minute that that we can do and
0: just briefly the listener of this podcast are very capable of listening yes 20 <laughs> minutes or even.
1: You can take this out. The, <laughs> the, but this the is why you have to have to few. add one.
0: Right? Antonia, no one wants to uh, advertise on this.
1: Okay. <laughs> not yet. Not I've yet. asked. Okay. <laughs> um, well, you can play some music in between or something. Um,
0: just make up some fake products.
1: Yeah. You know? um, no, but I, I guess my point here was just this is, yes it's like it would be great if we could if the politicians have very complex discussions on points over an hour would be more successful than the ones who give you a simplified answer to a very complex problem and by doing it they're not really answering it but unfortunately we are humans and this is how we work
0: and also i mean i think it's it's just getting worse right not just because there's so much information now that, you know, even, okay, like, okay, let's, we can maybe set politics aside for a second. Um, because there it's very obvious, you know, lots of people don't care that much or don't want to put lots of effort into something they have to basically do or whatever it. Right? So let, even if you just set that aside for a moment, even in something like science, right? I mean, there's occasionally there are studies done on how much scientists actually read of the articles they cite. And often it's they've read the title the abstract at most um, in a shockingly large amount of, of cases, right? So that people don't even read like what the actual experiment was, but they just mm. say like, oh, they, you know, they found this thing and just cite it. I, th- I mean, I think that's just a natural consequence of this complete uh, information overload, right? You You don't have much time for anything because there's so much coming at you. So you take, so yeah, whoever can Say the strongest message, the loudest, uh, is going to be heard. And yeah. You know. Yeah. So, like, what chance do we even have in something like politics when there's all these different candidates and you often have local candidates and then you have a countrywide candidate and, you know, you have to look into all these different parties and it happens like, for me, it's ridiculous. I've, because I'm moving, I've I've seemed to have been moving around in Germany, so that I've been basically had to vote like every year for the last five years um, at like major <laughs> elections. It's just <laughs> stupid. Um, but you know, you don't have like who's going to put the time and effort into it, right? You just watch a ten minute clip of each candidate and then go, okay, that one seemed like they knew what they were doing.
1: Mm. Yeah, So almost like I'm thinking, what, what's the what way around this and probably just only through realizing that this is how one works to go against your intuition or like your in- automatic way of going about things and to realize okay I'd like to only give 10 minutes to but I'm gonna do a bit of work and gonna sit here for an hour and look at different sources probably that's the only way really to
0: yeah, but I mean, even that's not really your way, right? Because you have, you know, I mean, I'm fairly, I mean, this is not like something I make a big point about, but I don't really care for politics as a kind of general interest. And, and I don't read up that much about it. And part of the reason is that I say, like, there's only so much you can do in a day. And if I now also spend lots of time doing all this political stuff, then something else has to give. And, so I don't know, right? Because it's easy to say, like, okay, everyone should, you know, read all the manifestos of the parties and inform themselves. But, hmm. you know, if you if you have, you know, if you're a, you're a single parent or something and you just come back for, like, 10 hours and your children want something to eat, like, you're not going to go read up for two hours on political parties, right? So I don't know.
1: Yeah. Quick question is whether you have to do it every day or whether it's enough to do it before a big election, I was just thinking that probably part of the reason why questionable people have been elected in the past decade is because people didn't do it and're not even aware of actually who's the other candidate I could vote for, and what
0: I don't know yeah I, I I mean I from what I've heard a lot of it was also protest against the status quo, you know, I'm not doing well, so I'm just gonna change it, see what happens can't be much worse than it is for me right now I think mm. I think that's mm. been part of it but yeah I don't know
1: 50, yeah.
0: um, after all this largely uninformed waffling on these topics <laughs> um, should we talk about the writing of the book because yeah I think you had some points and I had some points too here. Yeah.
1: so I my biggest point is inconsistency <laughs> <laughs> okay so I started the book, and I noticed a very floral language that I found interesting. But then, very early on, in like, is it the just second very briefly? Term?
0: Not only interesting, you you wrote me a text. Uh, you yeah. started writing, <laughs> saying like, "This is amazing. I love the I writing." Was, of and this maybe book. it
1: was only uh, I was like thinking. It was just the back, first
0: page. That's all you said. Yeah, but
1: it, but I was like, it was interesting because also I, there was I had like day off or something and I had like a morning and I started a book and I was obviously you know whenever you start a book your attention is like very focused on the writing but then like in the second chapter chapter I think it is it completely changes in the way everything is written and it becomes very confusing in a way that it's like every paragraph is from a different perspective and language changes quite a lot and then throughout the book then it comes more turns into again, away from the floral language into a very descriptive, plot-focused language, which is, you know, more in a sense of, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And throughout the book, I felt like this could have been written by different authors.
0: Maybe it was.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it was. Maybe Um, all the
0: Huxleys wrote this together. Yeah, but it's See, almost the front only say on my cover only says vintage Huxley. Yeah, it could be the whole, Huxley, the be the whole family.
1: Yeah. yeah, but um, it's almost like the way it appears to me because I can imagine. so I don't know whether he's written this book chronologically or whether he's written you know like parts chapters first and then like uh, earlier chapters later or like I don't know. But it almost seems to me like he's written it in a go and had obviously a lot of development like he's developed or maybe changed as a writer and it seems to me as, as if there wasn't that the, the editing didn't happen that somebody was like okay great however it's not consistent so we have to change certain bits <laughs> this is all, the perception I had as if there wasn't as it I perceived it in a way, in a way as it if it would have been written in a go and then it's like, okay, done. And I'm not going <laughs> to look at consistency. So yeah, that was my, my perception. What it's how... interesting.
0: I never noticed that. Um, I realized I just forget, forgot to say that one of the reasons, this is why I should have made more, more, more specific notes. But the reason I chose this is twofold. One was that I'd felt, you know, to would have this mirror, mirror up to what we're doing and that kind of stuff. The other part was that, what I would consider this a great book in that sense that, you know, it affected me in this way. It's probably the worst written great book I've read. And interestingly, I didn't notice that. But like the, there are there are two things that really that stood out to me that really annoyed me about the book in terms of the writing. So the first is a general problem that science fiction writers face, I think. And in a way, it's kind of, I've... Oh, I don't read lots of science fiction, but of the few books that I have read, none of them has really done this well either. And that's the problem of exposition, because if you're describing a completely different world, you have to describe what the rules are of that world. And you have to describe how it works, you know, what the people think and all this kind of stuff. And that's very difficult to do without explicitly saying at the beginning of the book, this is how this world works. So, you know, the first 30 pages or whatever of Brave New World are just this guy showing you around the world, right? Saying, oh, this was the hatchery. This is how this works. This is how this works. This is how this works. And it's just not really, it's, it's not how I think a book should be written in that sense. Um, I mean, again, this is, so, um, a slight comment here is, so I also read two, uh, one and a half books by H.G. Wells, who was, I think, one of the, f- one of the first like huge successes in science fiction and he wrote for example the time machine the other book so that's one book i read and the other is um men like gods which according to wikipedia was also part of the not inspiration for brave new world but you can see some similarities here and the funny thing is since reading H G Wells I think a lot higher of Huxley's writing because mm-hmm. H G Wells really doesn't write well <laughs> um and so he has this kind of you know it's also H G Wells wrote those books you know let's say roughly turn of the century um so still a bit before Huxley but he has this like really old school narration kind of style almost where so the way he solves this problem of exposition is that he takes a person from our current world or the current world of his time and puts them into this new world so that that person so you can you can see all the differences and you learn how the world works through the eyes of that person for example in the time machine um he has this time traveler who invents the time machine who you know uses the time machine and comes back and says hey guys (laughs) let me tell you what happened and then he can explain like oh look i was in this world and this is how it worked and all that kind of stuff and in somewhat similarly in men like gods he there's this random guy who basically i think has a car crash or something he him and something really random anyway he has there's a car crash or something and then suddenly him and some other people are in this new world now where they're like, where are we? What's going on? And then the beginning is this discussion of them and the people from this other world talking to each other and going like, hmm, how do you people work? How do we work, right? Hmm. So compared to that, you can almost say that Huxley is very modern in the way that he writes his books. Um, but I still, I find it difficult to read these kind of books where the where so much is taught to you about how the world works. Interestingly, though, there is in the beginning of, in the, in the foreword of Brave New World Revisited, they mentioned that Huxley wanted the novel to be a perfect blend of novel and essay. And in that sense, you can see how Brave New World kind of applies by that ideal. It's just, I don't think a novel should include essays. <laughs> um, yeah, that's part of it. So that's one half. The other half is that so this is something I've seen Huxley do in other stories also, uh, or in one in particular. So Huxley has this really, at least I think, annoying way of writing something really well, making a point subtly, and then telling you that he made the point in the immediate sentence afterwards. So he, in Brave New World in particular, he makes this point about the conditioning of people with a hypnopedia. So he, you know, as we discussed earlier, you have these people who are just constantly being told, uh, or like, you know, they sleep and they constantly hear these tapes and their minds basically become, Mm. or the contents of those tapes becomes their minds. And I think in particular, where I, where this happens is with uh, Lenina. Yeah. She has this moment where she says something and you realize that sounds familiar, like I've heard this before. And then you realize, like, oh, that's something that they heard from the tapes. She's basically just repeating the propaganda that's being told to her. And you have this, uh, at least I had this, and you have had this a few times, this moment of going, oh, this is really good. Like this is really good writing. You're you're realizing that the characters are just becoming uh, this propaganda. But then Huxley will in the next sentence say, uh, she said as she was conditioned to think or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like he'll, he'll make this amazing point and then tell you that he made this amazing point in the sentence afterwards, like someone yeah. telling you a joke and then explaining why the joke is funny. And. Uh, that I knows me so much that. because, sorry, just last point here. I randomly once bought this book at a train station called 50 great short stories, um, which at least in Europe is pretty common to see in the English speaking section of train stations. Uh, and it has, like, lots of different English-speaking short stories. And one of them is by Huxley called The Draconda Smile. Same thing. He does the same thing there again where he makes a subtle point and then in the next sentence he tells you that he just made a subtle point. And, oh, God, I hate that so much. Yeah. So I didn't. I, I don't really want to speak that negatively <laughs> about books, in particular because I think this book has some value. But mm-hmm. I find it interesting that in this case... You have this juxtaposition of Huxley, who to me seems to be a very good thinker, but not a great writer. And that's kind of an interesting combination.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see your partner in this as well, especially with Lenina. I think at times also it feels, and this is maybe moving away a bit from the writing style, but more into the plot, like. I wasn't convinced by everything, and sometimes it f- felt to me a bit. um, Like uh, some some of the things that were happening or described didn't, which is so obvious that that it didn't didn't really convince me. And I'm like, for example, the whole thing that they go into this conservate and they bump into Linda and, and John and this director of the hatchery has just told Bernard that he had lost a, a woman there. And it's just like, it's so obvious they go there and then all of a sudden they bump into her. And then without anything happening particularly particular, they, they're taking him with them. It's just like so simple that it didn't really convince me because it's like, like surely, like you could have like build it up a bit or make it a bit more because it's just like, um, it just um, it did wasn't really like cleverly written or cleverly presented to me. It was it was too simple and then also without any questions asked, they come come back with them to civilization and then. To hold a love story and not love story between Sean and Lenina. It's like all of a sudden it happened and it was like they hadn't really like talked to each other, like I don't know, but it was again very simple, like not very elaborate, not very detailed, not very clever in any way, which didn't convince me. And then Sean himself being like in this new world. But he's not also, he didn't seem to be surprised by anything. I mean, he was uncomfortable. He didn't like the civilized world for sure. But he, it was almost like assumed because his mother had told him about this brave new world that he wasn't surprised by anything that was going on there. And and I'm just like, even if I was told that you could fly around in like taxis from here to there within seconds and there's like multi-sensory cinemas, etc. I would still be surprised and a bit a bit overwhelmed <laughs> if I ended up in this world. Um, so yes, I think there are a, a couple of times in a book where it's like, this is like, it's a, it's a shame because I'm liking the whole book and I think it's interesting, good points, but some parts of it, didn't come across to me as clever and were too simple, which, yeah, I kind of like where I lost the illusion a bit, you know, like sometimes when you read you in this kind of like really immersed illusion, but parts yeah. of it, I just fell out of it a bit. Did yeah. you have a similar feeling I mean, at all? Uh,
0: just a quick, a brief comment is, you know, a, a book doesn't have to be clever in that sense, right? Um, like, or complicated. I think many of the best books are very simple books. But the and this kind of all relates to somehow when I when I read this, when I read Brave New World and realized or also when I read the Draconda Smile and realized that Huxley keeps explaining his own jokes, it really seemed like he just lacks confidence as a writer. Because, you know, if you have a very simple story, it takes a lot of courage to write a simple story and publish that because you feel like you have to make it complicated, you have to make it you know, clever and all mm. these things, and yeah, I wonder whether he just lacks that sometimes because, yeah, because of the explaining his jokes and and putting all the science mm-hmm. into it. And yeah.
1: but like, I don't know. Like when you say it doesn't have to be complicated, obviously it still needs to be. It really needs to be able to follow. But let's take the example of them straight away bumping into. Linda and John, and oh, surprise, this is the woman. Director it has to be lost.
0: believable,
1: yeah. Yeah, for, for me, it was not believable. But that's, you know, obviously my, my suge- subjective um, perception of, of this scene. And I feel it does need to be so complicated that you spend 300 pages <laughs> on them finding Linda or bumping into Linda and John. But it just was so quick and so simple. The depth, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think from the few books by Huxley I've read, I I often had this thought of: in principle, it's interesting, but it's it's not well written. It's not well put together, Um, which is a real shame because I think. Yeah I mean he was you know in a lot of what he wrote you know 50 80 years ago came true or is even more the case now right and it's it's almost a shame that yeah he he just wasn't better able to to to, to put that into a proper story or that kind of thing and I mean I don't want to so without trying to rip too much into Huxley as a writer um so I read this the biography of his right um, by Nicholas Murray, um, Aldous Huxley, an English intellectual, and one thing I fa- one comment I found interesting is that. Okay, this, I'm going to make a smaller side now, just because I read this and it's going to damn well go into this podcast because somehow <laughs> all the effort I put into this isn't going into <laughs> this. Uh, so I'm at least going to put this one into it now, uh, but it's about Aldous Huxley, the poet, because um, his first. Books, or, or books of poetry. So this is just a funny little story about his first collection of poetry. So it's quote from page 77. In September, Huxley's first book was published. Quote, I was amused by the Times' review of me, pleasantly offensive, end quote, he told his father when the first review of The Burning Wheel, the name of the book, appeared. The slim 51-page book had been published by Basil Blackwell in the series Adventurers All, which the jacket described as, quote, a series of young poets unknown to fame, end quote. Huxley's fellow poets in this series, Frank Betts, Sherrod Vines, and S. Reed Heyman, were destined to continue to enjoy that status, perhaps because Blackwell's sales pitch was rather unimpassioned. Quote, the object of the series is to remove from the work of young poets the reproach of insolvency, end quote. The common preface began. A publisher's advertisement in the book quoted The Observer to the effect that, quote, the getup of the series is very attractive, type paper and the shape of the pages are all good and the poems are printed with a nice regard for margins, end quote. The observer was silent on the actual merits of the poems that positioned themselves so prettily between those margins. So that was the <laughs> first book, <laughs> actually published. Um, but the second one is actually, I just wanted to put that in there, but the second one is actually more interesting in terms of how it was um, received. This, again, was a collection of poems. Um, It was with the same publisher, but now he managed to upgrade to uh, the series, from the series, a series of young poets unknown to fame. He was now part of the series of poetry by Proved Hands. And there was, of this, there was an anonymous review in the Times Literary Supplement, uh, where someone said, quote, better equipped with the vocabulary of a poet than with the inspiration of a poet, end quote. And that reviewer turns out to have been Virginia Woolf. And what's even more interesting is that, so I don't know whether this was the case at the time, but Huxley was very well connected, and he he was friends with T.S. Eliot uh, and with uh, Virginia Woolf. And finally, then there's for his third book of poetry there's a not exactly a review but a comment by t.s Eliot, which was quote i was unable to show any enthusiasm for his verse <laughs> which is pretty brutal if your two friends virginia wolf and t.s Eliot, just rip you to shreds on your poetry <laughs> um but i did find the virginia wolf comment interesting that he has the vocabulary but he lacks the inspiration or imagination mm. and Sometimes it does feel like that a bit to me in Brave New World. Like he has the thoughts, he has the, you know, he has the intelligence, mm. but he kind of lacks that—not um, necessarily poetic, but yeah, that kind of imagination to really make something out of it. Mm. Yeah. So I just wanted to shoehorn in that.
1: Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. no, interesting, but but um, the question is. To- <laughs> that does a piece of literature need to tick all the boxes because it's one one of the biggest classics and it's been around for almost 100 years now.
0: Of course. I mean, we've been, for the last 20 minutes, shitting on a book that's uh, one of the most famous (laughs) and highly (laughs) acclaimed and best-selling books of the last 70 years or whatever. (laughs) So... um, yeah. yeah but i that is it is really but that is an interesting part to me that you can write a great book even without writing a book that's particularly well written <laughs> uh, but as fiction right it's not like you know in, in science and philosophy we know that stuff doesn't have to be have to be well written yeah. but it's interesting that in fiction it seems to be the same thing yeah um although probably the exception rather than the norm that's true Yeah, um, I feel like I prepared incorrectly for this because I read so much around it that actually I actually have failed to say about the book itself and more about. <laughs> I have so many points more on Huxley's biography and life, but it seems like it's just random at this point now.
1: Yeah, yeah. but I mean, we've covered quite a lot. No, I'm just looking at my. I think we covered most of mine.
0: Yeah, I mean, also, you know, we're not providing the ultimate companion and commentary (laughs) on Brave New World. I think this is somewhat similar in vain to the book club where we are just interested in reading Mm. and have a brief discussion about it. And in this case, I read like three books, but not the actual book recently. (laughs)
1: But he had read it before. I think that's important to mention. Yeah, I mean, I read it. I read think. it before,
0: and actually, this is this is probably the first book that I was supposed to read in school, and that I actually read. I, I mean, I didn't read it in <laughs> school, but I read it afterwards. Um, <laughs> mm.
1: Yeah,
0: and I, one thing that okay, so we you know we keep saying that Huxley is not that great of a writer, but Helmholtz Watson is such a catchy name that every single time I hear Helmholtz, which actually happens occasionally. I always think Watson immediately afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> it's really annoying.
1: Yeah, no, it is a good name. I mean, his name's so good. Also, Bernhard Marx is quite good. <laughs> yeah,
0: but I mean, Helmholtz Watson is such a... Yeah, it's a good name. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: Lenina yeah. is maybe a bit... I mean, Helmholtz Watson is really on the nose in the same way that Lenina is, but somehow funnier. Yeah, actually, one one thing that... Um, I was surprised by when you read the biography is that Huxley himself, I think in letters to his father or something called this a satire or a comedic book, which I didn't really get. <laughs> I, don't I mean, think...
1: if you think about it like this, then all of the points that I make made it is unbelievable and too simple kind of like disappear because as soon as you think about it in a comic sense or uh, yeah but it's not like a slapstick
0: comedy right (laughs) i mean it's it's not that either Sure. i mean i don't think i don't think he's making fun of you know i don't think it's a satire of the or a parody of the genre um i think he does develop it further as i said if you reach hg wells you very much have this kind of you know let me tell you the story about this crazy place where i went and then someone Mm. just tells them everything you know it's it's so in that sense huxley is is quite advanced and i think he did advance the yeah but yeah still i didn't i didn't realize this was comedic
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) i mean you (laughs) missed that
0: one (laughs) i mean to be fair this was maybe more from the when he started writing it maybe that changed but Mm.
1: but yeah this is also what i what i meant like the the voice and the writing style changes throughout the book. I feel, maybe, maybe what is, although I also didn't really find it comedic, um, comedic at the beginnings. So. Then, yeah,
0: yeah, I don't know. Okay, maybe, maybe the last point is that when just talking about the sci-fi genre, it was interesting to me how a lot of what's a lot of the general message some of it of what's in brave New world is also an hg wells's book um which i found kind of interesting for example in the time machine which is ostensibly quite different book mm-hmm. or oh, i mean not yeah, i mean it's, it's kind of different he talks about um or maybe i'll just quote the thing uh so the quote goes from the time machine for the first time i began to realize an odd consequence of the social of the social effort in which we are at present engaged Strength is the outcome of need security sets a premium on feebleness. The work of ameliorating the conditions of life, the true civilizing process that makes life more and more secure, had gone steadily onto a climax. One triumph of united humanity over nature had followed another. Things that are now mere dreams had become projects deliberately put in hand and arrived forward. Then another quote is, uh, we are kept keen on the grindstone of pain and necessity. And then finally, at once, like a lash across the face, came the possibility of losing my own age, of being left helpless in this strange new world. So I know that the the title is from Hamlet or whatever, something by mm-hmm. Shakespeare, Brave yeah, New World. The Tempest. But when you read it, oh, sorry, Tempest, uh, but when you read it this way, like The Strange New World, I did go, huh, <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. But in, funnily, weirdly enough, and this really surprised me, apparently H.G. Wells really hated the book, so he he didn't like braverywood at, at all even though it seems like they were talking about a lot of similar things that you kind of need this struggle you can't just you know you can't just live in bliss all the time mm-hmm. um, i don't know do you have anything any more wisdom to share
1: and i think i've shared all of my wisdom
0: that was all of it okay <laughs> <laughs>
1: unfortunately i'm sorry to be disappointing
0: <laughs> it's fine I mean, you can, you know, collect some more, and then Mm -hmm. whenever we do another book, you can just dispel with all of that.
1: Yeah, we'll do that.